0: Hi, it's Chris Seta, and before we start this brand new episode, I wanted to take a second to really thank you all for your support of this podcast. I know I promised you a monthly installment, but quite a lot has changed since recording my first episode back in March. I spent some time during the quarantine thinking about how I could proceed given the in-person format of this show. Some people suggested it was time to give in and use Zoom or Skype for my conversations like everyone else. Or why not simply mail a nice microphone set up to my guests so they could record themselves remotely? These are all sensible solutions, and pivoting would have been the smart strategy. Maybe I'm just crazy, but I believe a little bit of magic happens when we can connect in person. More recently, much of the country entered phase two of its reopening from the COVID-19 pandemic. So with sanitizer and masks in hand, Nicole and I jumped in the car for a 10-hour drive from Florida to North Carolina for my next set of interviews. So please buckle up and join us on our journey as we're about to go on a road trip.
1: I'm in class, and Lyle's in his office, and I still remember him coming down. You need to come here right now. (laughs) What? Okay. So go up, and they want to know what you're doing. I went, I'm running the software like we talked about. And he goes, they're saying you gotta stop it right now. And I went, Why? He goes, Because so far we've shut down the history department, the English department, the chemistry department. And we're like,
0: what? I'm Dr. Chris Setta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. On today's show, my guest is Dr. Dave Paquette. Innovation isn't about having all the answers, but true innovators are able to clearly recognize opportunities when they arise. In fact, author Greg Sattel said, the truth is that even really smart people get the future wrong, which is why it's more important to explore than to predict. You might recall that Steve Jobs was a college dropout yet dropping out allowed Steve to drop in on subjects he was interested in. His curiosity led him to audit a calligraphy class, which had no practical relevance at the time. But ten years later, that calligraphy class played an important role in developing the typefaces for the Mac. And if it weren't for Steve Jobs dropping in on that class, who knows if computers would have different fonts today. In his commencement speech at Stanford, Steve said... You can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. And much of what I stumbled into by following my curiosity and intuition turned out to be priceless later on. Consider the story of orthodontist Dr. Dave Paquette. I recently sat down with Dave outside of his home in North Carolina, overlooking the beautiful Lake Norman. Now, I'm sure you know the name, but if you aren't quite picturing who Dave is, you'd probably recognize his distinctive Hawaiian shirt and shaved head. Most people know Dave as an expert in clinical efficiencies while leading the innovation at Henry Shine Orthodontics. But how he got there is an intriguing account of connecting the dots, looking backwards. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Well, Thank you, Chris. We have to set the scene here for our listeners. Where are we today?
1: We're sitting in our poolside cabana. On a beautiful day in June.
0: Certainly, this is a beautiful setting we're in today. And I have to mention that Dave was kind enough to make some great frozen margaritas today. So can we maybe just hear what's the paquette recipe? Is there a secret recipe or are we just going right off the label? Uh, it's actually a cheater's recipe. A cheater's recipe. Do you remember what it is? I know exactly what it is. Come on. Well, tell you People to want liquor, to know.
1: You go to the liquor store and <laughs> you buy the Cuervo Golden margarita mix pre-mixed
0: and well you fooled me because i think this is good maybe because i'm about halfway through the drink but. well it
1: i mean i've tried them everywhere and i still think they're the best because they have a little uh a little bit of everything in there already and you don't even have to doctor it up
0: do you happen to have like a Margaritaville uh, mixer? Machine mixer? I do, you yes. do. So that, maybe that's the secret right there, yeah. just getting the proper ice blend, getting it nice and cold. Absolutely. It's the whole deal. It's the whole deal. So let's go back to uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So you started there, I want to say, around, what was it, mid-70s? Uh, 1976. 1976, the bicentennial year. Mm -hmm. And it it must have been a real interesting time at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I don't think Dr. Prophet was there yet.
1: Yeah, he was. A funny story about dental school. When I was applying, everyone remembers, you know, you wait and you wait and you wait. And so... You get the thin envelopes, and you know that's a rejection. Ooh. And my uh, girlfriend at the time, her dad was part-time faculty at the dental school. I didn't even know it. Hmm. Um, she never talked about it. And so it was the last week of interviews, and I got an interview, which I found out literally a year later that she had called her dad and pulled some strings. And so I uh, go to the interview... And there was one member of the faculty who was famous for breaking the rules on the interview process. And so I'm in this interview, and during the summers, I worked at a water ski school. And so he didn't care anything about your grades or anything else. He started asking what you did aside from academics. And he goes, oh, I have a niece I've been trying to teach how to water ski. And so we went back and forth and back and forth, and that was the whole interview. He goes, "Oh, as far as I'm concerned, you're in." And I went, "I thought I wasn't supposed to hear anything for two weeks." And he goes, "Oh, you calling me a liar?" And I went, no, 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 no. That's and and he literally wrote on my folder, "Accepted." And and I was like, wow. "You got to be kidding me!" Wow,
0: uh, all over water skiing.
1: All over water skiing had nothing to do with anything else.
0: It's funny how that works a lot of times,
1: yeah. right? But that's. That's how I got there.
0: So who else was there at Chapel Hill sort of in the late 70s? Was David Sarver there at the time?
1: David Sarver was there. Henry Fields was there. Kate Vig, Peter Vig. I can go down a whole list of, of all. Lots they, of
0: big names. Probably the most and...
1: powerful orthodox department that has ever been assembled. And how did that form? Prophet handpicked people to come in, mm-hmm. you know, and for different reasons to do different things. And, you know, he was a very persuasive
0: guy. So. Mm. so you eventually went on to pediatric dentistry. So did you want to pursue orthodontics first, or you just always had an interest? In, well, in I knew
1: the smartest guy in the dental school was Henry Fields. Mm. There was no doubt. And he was trained at Iowa with Pedo and Seattle in orthodontics, which were the two top programs at the time. Mm-hmm. And he came to Chapel Hill, and if you had a question, it didn't matter whether it was about orthodontics or or pediatric dentist or anything else, you go to Hank, and he had the answer. Mm. So when I was a senior, I I was talking to him, and he goes, I don't know if you recall, but there were combined pedo-ortho programs that were three years long.
0: Oh, were there? I didn't know that. Okay.
1: And he said, don't bother with any of those, because you either get a watered-down ortho education or a watered-down pedo education. Go to the best pedo program you can and the best ortho program you can. So I uh, stayed in Chapel Hill and went to pedo.
0: I believe your pediatric dentistry research was on modified cavity preparations for composite resin in primary teeth. So this was around 82, 83. And I think this was pretty innovative because at the time, it was probably a lot of amalgam work. Composites were just coming out. Tell us a little bit more about that research.
1: So Carl Leinfelter uh, was my thesis advisor. And at the time, the FDA did not approve composites for use in posterior teeth. Hmm. And so uh, you could only use amalgam or gold. Carl and I, he was not part of the pediatric dentistry faculty, but he and I had grown to be pretty close friends in dental school, and he was in charge of the material science department.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So one day at lunch, you know, I was having lunch, and he sat down, we we're chatting. And he goes, what are you going to do for your thesis? And I went, I don't know. He goes, you know, it'd be really interesting if we could try composites in back teeth. Hmm. And I went, yeah. And, and he goes, but, you know, we can't do it in permanent teeth because it's not allowed, but baby teeth fall out. So no harm, no foul. <laughs> and I went, that's true. And he goes, problem is everyone who's tried it, and there was one or two people before me that tried it, but they use standard amalgam cavity preparations and the composites would always fail.
0: Is that because of shrinkage at the time? Or? Shrinkage
1: and sharp angles okay. and everything else. And, and so he said, we got to figure out what shape the cavity prep needs to be to make it work first. Interesting. And so we tried a whole bunch, and probably when you were in dental school, it was standard procedure. That was normal, right? In yeah. today's day and age, this yeah. is normal. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it was heresy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had some of the, uh, the pros faculty, like, they'd see me in the hall, oh, you're that guy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, back in the day, everyone learned, I guess, GV Black's Absolutely. preparations, right? Yeah, with the
1: grooves and everything yeah. else. And, and so uh, it turned out it not only worked, but worked fabulously and changed the game, really. And so, you know, in ortho, I won the Milo Hellman, but I won the equivalency in pediatric dentistry. And now I don't think there's a silver filling in a baby tooth anywhere in the world.
0: So what, what persuaded you to join the service? Was it doing good for your country? Was it just paying back your loans? Uh, none of the above. None of the above.
1: I had the privilege of finishing my pedo degree, and I had five guys that I'd gone to dental school with that had a group practice around Chapel Hill that asked me to come in and do their pediatric dentistry for them. So I thought it was like you know easy street. I mm-hmm. didn't have to set up a practice or anything else, just went in there. And uh, about a year later, found out they were heavily involved in insurance fraud. Oh, wow. And so I went to my department chairman, Ted Oldenburg, and and asked him, you know, how on earth do I handle this? He goes, well, if you turn them in, you're never going to get a referral from any dentist in the area. Um, If you don't turn them in, then you're equally guilty. And so you can set up your own practice but then you're going to have to answer all kinds of questions or you can move to somewhere else depending on what you want to do. And I said, well, I want to go back to ortho training. I just don't want to do it yet. Right. He goes, we had a guy a few years ago who uh, joined the Air Force and he's traveling all over the world and having a great time and we keep getting postcards from him. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, hadn't even thought about that. And I said, well, if you can send me to Europe, I'm all in. And he goes, well, we can't send you to Europe. We can send you to England. And I went, okay, when can I go? He goes, when can you leave? I said, how about tomorrow? (laughs) And he goes, seriously? I went, yeah. So I went back to the office that night. I wrote up a letter, typed it all out, went and got all the, the charts out of the office that are all paper, filled up the back of my car. So I went over to my biggest competitors and said, Merry Christmas. The only deal is you have to mail all the letters out. (laughs) All right. And so my, I guess, revenge for these guys trying to put me in a bad place with them was that uh, I gave like 1,500 charts to my biggest competitor for free, got in the car and drove to Texas and went through officer training.
0: What a crazy story. Yeah. So what was it like? This? So this was England in the middle of the 80s, I would say, right? Mm-hmm.
1: It was really a fun time overall because uh, I got to travel all over Europe and, and help out at other bases. I had probably more experience in a couple years than most people get in 20 years of practice because all the kids that couldn't be handled on a local basis would get airlifted to see me. And so, that,
0: that couldn't have been a lot of kids, right?
1: <laughs> I was in the operating room like two days a week, like, just running them like one after another, after another, after another. Wow. Uh, so I had a ton of OR experience. The only military thing that was pretty cool was our base was the very first base in the world to get the laser-guided bombs. And Ronald Reagan was president. And they, uh, if you recall in your history, we had a little incident with Libya, and they decided to put Gaddafi in his place. And those planes flew from our base, and they actually had Gaddafi in the sights of one of the laser bombs. And Reagan, over the communications to the pilot, goes, no, we don't assassinate people. How badly can you scare him? No and way. And they literally drop bombs as a moat around his compound. Wow! So, what an interesting story. And yeah. then you
0: went eventually to Japan too. right? From there,
1: I went to Japan and I was a consultant there and got to travel all over uh, Japan, uh, Korea, Philippines—you know, all over the place. It was it was really interesting.
0: So you went to your ortho residency program at SLU. Which uh, was run by Lyle Johnson, I believe, at the time. That or, it was. So talk to me about that. What was that experience like?
1: My application to St. Louis U was almost as uh, interesting as dental school. So in my interview with Lyle, he literally uh, went down the list of schools I applied to, told me where I wasn't getting in and where I wasn't even going to get an interview, and it, which was <laughs> shocking. And it's like, well, how do you know that? He uh, said, well, all you guys from Chapel Hill just want to go to Chapel Hill, so why don't you call me when I can take your application seriously?
0: Hmm.
1: And I went, oh, okay. So I was living in Japan at the time, because I was you know, still in the Air Force, mm-hmm. got a call from Henry Fields telling me that, unfortunately, um, I didn't get into Chapel Hill, but perhaps I should reconsider one of the other programs so i had interpreted lyle's comment that i was in if i didn't go to chapel hill Mm -hmm. so i left a message that you know after thinking about it i would uh, accept the place in the class and i come home from work and again because of the time change at japan uh, there's a message on my answer machine (laughs) that says Acceptance wasn't exactly what Dr. Johnston had in mind. (laughs) However, after thinking about it, he feels it might be interesting to include you in the class. Oh, And so I saved that tape. No way. And I ended up being our class president and gave the graduation speech and everything. So I started my graduation speech with, you know, we're all very fortunate now to be orthodontists. And we have a really great future ahead of us. But none of you are as fortunate as I am And I played the tape.
0: Oh, and, and for maybe some of our listeners who don't know, because they're used to voicemail, the the tape machines actually came in these little micro cassettes right. back yeah. in the day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's so cool that you saved it.
1: <clears throat> and he sat there and just turned bright red. <laughs> and, and he goes... Did I? Did I? And it was all on the recording. It was so funny. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, So, yeah, I was very fortunate. And then he ended up being my thesis advisor, of course.
0: What was your research on? You mentioned that you won the award. It
1: was actually on research design by 1985, 86, 87. And you have to realize at the time that a computer was about the size of a kitchen table, Mm -hmm. right? And desktop computers, PCs, had just come on the market and they were very expensive so i was the only one in the department that had my own computer because i bought it in japan when i was there and brought Uh, it back to the u.s and so i uh was talking to lyle and he had this idea that computers could predict how an orthodontist would think
0: which is very timely now right
1: now yeah yeah and so what we did is is went through all the records in the basement of St. Louis and ended up with 216 patients that the computer matched that were indistinguishable from each other. Hmm. And we used like hundreds and hundreds of different things to look at. You know, most orthodontists look at four or five, like SNA and all whatever. We put every single piece of data we could put in. And the first time I ran the software to pick the patients... While because he was a department chairman, St. Louis was one of the few supercomputers in the country. Right, ran the software to pick them and crashed the university computer. No way! And and
0: everything went down.
1: Everything, every department, because he had a priority one and he'd never used it, and it kept closing down other departments trying to figure out this this can you uh,
0: imagine if that happened today
1: oh it was it was funny uh so uh we get a call from the computing center and i'm in class and lyle's in his office and i still remember him coming down you need to come here right now like, What? <laughs> okay so I go up and they want to know what you're doing i went i'm running the software like we talked about yeah. and he goes they're saying you got to stop it right now <laughs> I went, why he goes because so far, we've shut down the history department, the English department, the chemistry department, and i are like, what? Because oh, nobody could do anything. So we gave them permission to stop it. Now, were these just like CEF numbers or overbite, C- overjet? CEF numbers, model numbers, everything. Okay. And what we were trying to decide is once we had this group of patients that were essentially identical, could the computer figure out how an orthodontist would treat them? Interesting, But they had already been treated, which was the beauty, mm-hmm. right? So then the computer had to go back once they had that and figure yeah. out how would you treat it. And that's when we figured that um, how an orthodontist decides to take out teeth or not take out teeth. And Very that's what the thesis was all about.
0: You've always been known as sort of an early adopter of Invisalign. When did you get involved with Align Technology? What year was that? That would have been 1998, 99. 99. And if I remember my history, I think it was 97, was that correct, that a line started? That's
1: when they started. That's when Kelsey and Zia first had the idea.
0: The idea. Mm-hmm. Great. And so how did
1: you get drawn into the company? Um, not by choice. Mm. So in 1998, my wife and I were at the AO, and... Uh, She was not my wife then. She was my fiance. And she was wearing braces because she hated her smile. And I know there's a lot of folks out there that have had the same experience. Mm -hmm. And so she wanted to have the perfect smile before our wedding. So, of course, go to the A.O. in 1998. And the uh, Invisalign has this booth, right, that is one banquet table. (laughs) <laughs> with some models on it and a sign Invisalign and a couple people, Ross Miller and I forget who else was there. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I just walked right by it and thinking it's an Essex retainer. It's it's stupid. Mm-hmm. You know? And so Jenny went and looked at all this stuff and we're on our way home and she goes, um, I want to do Invisalign. I don't want to wear braces anymore. I went, it won't work. And I don't know if you've ever had a, quote, discussion with your spouse when they disagree with you and go to the ends of the world to prove that you're wrong? <laughs> I certainly have. <clears throat> yeah, so yeah, I kind of ignored it and blew it off and blew it off and blew it off. and And then the first certification course in our region happened in 1999. Jenny and my treatment coordinator had figured out when this course was going to be and signed me up without me knowing it because <laughs> I just wasn't even interested. And I have... Uh, my pilot's license. So the day comes around and I went, all right, well, at least I can get some instrument time. I go to the airport, get in the airplane. My goal is to fly there, sign in for the course and fly back. And at least I can write off the expenses uh, of flying there and back. Sure. Right. Walk in the door. Who do I see as my biggest competitor? Right. So now I got to stay because he can't know more than me. Right. So... You have to picture that they were so impressive in these first courses, right? They had computer stations set up for every doctor, and they had full-length wall white screen where they were projecting the instructor who was in California, and they were doing this remotely. And since all of us had microphones at our desk. If you asked a question back in California in the studio, he knew where you were in the room and would turn around and look at you and answer the question. And I went, if they can do that, then they can straighten teeth.
0: Yeah, seriously. So, I mean, this was the late 90s. This kind of teleconferencing and, and webinars, this didn't happen back then.
1: No, it was unheard of. I yeah. was like, are you kidding me? Wow. This is so cool. He's looking right at me as answering the question. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back, and uh, ironically, my competitor, to the day he retired, never did a single Invisalign case.
0: Oh, is that Not right? one.
1: All <laughs> right? So... I ended up being uh, one of the only orthodontists in three states that did Invisalign. So I'm getting these referrals from hours away. Hmm. And back in the day, we were thinking it was just good for relapse and a couple other things. Right. Um, and so meanwhile, my wife is in treatment. All mm-hmm. right. She was my very first patient. And she wore her aligners 26 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> she was bound and determined to prove me wrong. Uh, well, there you go. And, and it worked. It was like, are you kidding me? I mean, this is crazy. I mean, uh, it would have been two years of braces and, and 10 months later, she, she's like,
0: perfect. So not only were you an early adopter, then you became part of the what they call the CAB or the yeah. Clinical Advisory Board. Right. Line. And, and that still exists today, I imagine? It does. Even, yeah. th- even though you've uh, moved on to greener pastures, if you will?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I parted ways of few years ago. A few years ago.
0: And and before we head into the future here, I know you're a big uh, Damon user for a while. And um, for those of you who don't know, Ormco has a similar group called the Ormco Insiders Group, yes. which I believe you're a part of. I was, yep. And uh, how many doctors do they have in, in that group?
1: Well, when I joined, so the Insiders Group at Ormco was a nickname for the Lingual Bracket Study Club okay inside the teeth oh, insiders. okay all right
0: i thought it was like a secret society or something and
1: that's whatever that's what they wanted it to seem see so you got it yeah. but it was actually the lingual study club and there were six orthodontists on it anyone we know today oh yeah jim hilgers uh uh ron Ronconi, ron redmond i mean they were the a
0: lot of big names
1: a lot of the names yes and so I recall I was on the shuttle to go out to the big Ormco party on the island in Seattle. And this guy comes up to me and he goes, uh, so you won the Milo Hellman? And I went, yeah. He goes, we'd like you to join. Um, we have this special group that helps us, you know, develop products and stuff. Hmm. And I went, yeah, I guess we've got several Milo Hellman winners on the team now and we want you to join us. And I went, Okay. That'd be great, and so uh, I show up at my first Insiders meeting, and I just opened my practice, and I had no money because everything was going in the practice. So I show up, and I'll never, I'll never forget this. Right. So first of all, I borrow money to go to the meeting, and I'm sitting at the bar trying to figure out if I can afford a beer at this resort hotel that costs you know more than I'd ever dreamed of. Mm-hmm and ron Ronconi sits down next to me and orders a scotch neat and his scotch costs more than i made in a week (laughs) (laughs) and and i went oh and 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 he we start chatting he goes what uh so what are you doing here i said i'm here for an orthodontic meeting he goes well, there's only one orthodontic meeting here, and I don't know you.
0: (laughs) You weren't on the inside at that point.
1: Yeah, and this is like the afternoon just before the meeting starts. So we start talking, and he goes, so how many patients have you started? And I said, four. And he goes, well, 400, that's not bad for a young guy. I went, no, four. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, and why are you here again? (laughs) And I went, well, I got invited, da 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 And he goes, so you're not mu- going to get much out of how to start 1,000 patients a year, which is what I'm talking about. Oh, wow. And my eyes
0: got the size of saucers. The concept of a practice that size. I imagine it's that involvement here with the insiders group that, in Ronconi who right. gave you that vision of sort of a, a larger practice and how to get there.
1: Well, that, and recall, my dad was an efficiency expert. Mm. Right? That's what his consulting was in the, in the transportation industry. So that That's... had been drilled into me from the time I was a kid.
0: Ah, uh, so interesting how it ties back into that, right? Yeah. So cool. When we come back in just a moment, what was promised as a fun ski trip turns out to be much more than Dave bargained for, and how that weekend results in assembling a team of innovators at Henry Schein. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from Retainer Club. Retainer Club is the easiest way for orthodontists to provide their patients with perfectly fitting retainers at a great price. Over 1,500 patients already love Retainer Club and use its easy online services to replace their retainers without the need to come into the office. Orthodontists love Retainer Club because they feel confident that the smiles they created are being maintained for life, while their long-term fans continue to refer new patients to their practices. To learn more, visit retainerclub.com partner. Support also comes from Fishbein Fundamentals. Dr. Ben Fishbein invites you and your team members to beautiful Pensacola Beach, Florida for his all-access and behind-the-scenes course. Dr. Ben and the Fish Ortho team will reveal proven marketing strategies, simplified new patient procedures, and efficient clinical management systems. Best of all, you're able to observe the Fish Ortho team on an actual patient day. Reserve your spot now at fishbindfundamentals.com. Welcome back to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm Chris Seta. So it's 2012, and Henry Shine has recently acquired Ortho Organizers along with several other smaller orthodontic companies. So
1: they had these four different companies, and Ted Dreyfus, who used to be at Ormco and was very important in taking Dwight Damon and his philosophy of care worldwide, all right, and he was very close with Dwight, as I was for years, um, and think the world of Dwight. I'd never say anything negative. He he taught me more than I could ever imagine. And so one of the things that Dwight had talked about for years was the relationship between orthodontics and airway. And no one was teaching it. There wasn't really any firm basis other than opinions. So I got a phone call and... It was Ted, and I hadn't talked to him in a while because he had left Ormco during the Danaher transition. Mm-hmm. And Ted asked me what I knew about uh, sleep apnea. And I went, Well, I know my father in law has it. That's about all I know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he goes, Well, I want to form a task force to see if orthodontics really and truly has any relationship. Hmm. And I went, Okay. He goes, And I'd like you to run it. I went, Ted. I don't know anything about sleep apnea. And he goes, that's good. So there's no preconceptions because we're going to get right down to fundamentals and see if there's anything there. So he asked me if I had any idea who we should include. Mm-hmm. So I went down the list of people that I knew either were good thinkers or uh, had some interest in it. Um, Lou Shimura, who I knew from the Schulman Group, actually had sleep apnea and had been treated surgically and and whatnot for it and we gathered up about a half a dozen orthodontists and started just discussing how we would go about it and first day we met at a resort uh, and I'm thinking this is easy we're gonna go skiing we're gonna have a good time and we meet for breakfast we're going through this and all of a sudden the door opens and Marie Gerson rolls in this cart, stacked three feet high with paper. Hmm. And we're all looking at each other, going, "That's interesting." And Ted starts grabbing literally, like a f- six inches to a foot off each stack, and putting him in front of us. And he goes, "All right, while I'm skiing, you guys need to read all these articles. And review them and report back oh, this didn't afternoon. Oh, you did up for this. And I'm like, it sounds like I'm a resident. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all looking at each other. You're joking us, right? And
0: you dragged everyone into this, right? And
1: and, and he goes, no, we're going to get down to it. And so we met probably over the next six to nine months, literally going through all the dental literature, medical literature, anything that we could come across, uh, respiratory therapy, to see what the potential relationship was mm-hmm. and found in the process two things one that the world center for this was Stanford University and they were years ahead of anyone else Dr. Guillermo had already figured out all the things that we were trying to figure out
0: and I think Glenn Krieger took a, a group out there recently
1: and the second thing was that in fact we realized there is no specialty in medicine or dentistry that has a greater opportunity to screen patients on a regular basis and direct them to the right place for care than orthodontics Hmm. we see them at the right age we have all the information we have the ability and knowledge to do it and the pediatricians don't do it you know Patients don't see ENT docs as frequently as they see us, of course. Uh, and when they do see ENT docs, most of the time they're going in with, you know, an ear infection or something else, and the ENT docs don't have time in their screening or their, their normal exam process. And for us, it adds maybe thirty seconds in the exam to evaluate and give them real information to move forward. Right. That to me is such a huge impact on the life of all these patients, that when someone has a problem, to be able to get them to a sleep center or a sleep doc or whatever and get proper care, it just has added layers and layers of quality of life to patients that I would have completely ignored before.
0: Can you think of any particular patients that you have treated that you've been able to help in this way? Oh, lots of them.
1: I mean and especially the little kids that are misdiagnosed with adhd Mm -hmm. that when you realize that they have sleep issues um, that you send them to the ent doc and they get tonsils and adenoids and you do a little bit of expansion to support that and then they go back to the sleep center and find out it's totally different and their grades go up and the parents come back and go you completely changed their life Mm -hmm. you know now is that the role of an orthodontist as far as i'm concerned It is. That's one of the reasons that we're called doctors, Mm -hmm. right? We're not just tooth straighteners. And can we fix them all by ourselves? No, but we can certainly recognize and direct them to the place to get all the care that they need.
0: Mm. So airway is certainly a big uh, platform of HSO. And the other one I think of with Henry Schein is the Sagittal First philosophy that Luis brought in. And um, so just doing a little bit of research myself, I think Luis was with uh, this class one orthodontic company first, right? and he had his bracket, and uh, it was the distalizer at the time with that company, and then he came on board, um, and then Henry Schein sort of adopted the Sagittal First uh, philosophy. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So when I first met Luis, I was, like everyone else, he's kind of a, a funny, comical guy, but then I realized he's a, he's a really, really, really smart person. Um, yes. <clears throat> and his father, of course, was an orthodontist. Pepe. So Pep, he stepped on Pepe's shoulders and started off from a launching pad that the rest of us can't even imagine
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and watched his father work very hard when he was young. And so mm-hmm. his father actually has some textbooks on segmental orthodontics and the idea of doing okay. sagittal first is age old. I mean, Burstone talked about it in the U.S. And his, Burstone was a contemporary of Pepe. And so what Louise did was figured out how to take all those complex biomechanics and simplify them so that every orthodontist could apply it in a manner that was both predictable and successful. Mm-hmm. And that was the genius of what was the distalizer. Now, we changed the name, we meaning Uh, Henry Schein orthodontics changed the name from the distalizer to the motion 3D after Jim McNamara and his students started looking at what the treatment effects were Hmm. and found that the treatment effects were both localized to the dental alveolar complex but also had subtle changes throughout the, uh, the face and in the same way that every class two corrector does in three planes of space. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't just distalizing molars. Right. In fact, we we're changing everything about the deno alveolar relationship.
0: And the occlusal plane to them. The and answer. the
1: occlusal plane too. Right. Yeah. Mm
0: hmm. Right. So uh, personally, I what I. Really love about the Carrier Motion is just the simplicity of it. For myself and my own personal experience with motion, I've had some cases that turn out phenomenal, and then I have others that we don't seem to make any progress after four to six months. So, where am I going wrong in this process? I'll start off with Force One elastics for about a month. You know, as long as they're wearing them, we'll graduate to Force Two. I do take progress photos uh, at every visit so we can check in at least buckle shots. I like to disarticulate with bite turbos. Uh, Any other suggestions you would have for people, or or what's the key to getting great results?
1: Well, the key is compliance. Mm -hmm. You know? And we all know patients lie to us. Uh, (laughs) They they, do. Yeah. Well, at least they do in North Carolina. (laughs) Um, It's simple physiology. If you have the rubber bands in all the time, the teeth will move. Mm -hmm. And so I generally don't look at the progress by... When they come in for that first check, whether or not teeth have moved, we check and see if there's mobility on the canine. If the canine is not oh. mobile, they are not wearing their rubber bands.
0: So that leads to a difficult conversation, which, you know, I, I do the same. I check for mobility. So how, how do you phrase it? Do you do you have the parent there in question or do you just talk to the child first?
1: No, I, I always have the parent there because, you know, otherwise the kids go out to, to the waiting room. Oh, they didn't do anything today. Yeah. Right. And so I'll have the parent there and I'll say, look, I have to come here every day. And so you get the choice of how often you want to come and see me and how long you want to come and see me. Our goal is to get your eye tooth from here to here. And that's when we know we're done. The only thing can do that is you and the rubber bands. So if it's a girl, Mm -hmm. I'll say, you know, if you don't wear your rubber bands, the motion is like having a cell phone with a dead battery.
0: And that seems to resonate with them, huh? Oh, yeah.
1: You can't text your friends. You can't go on Instagram. You can't do anything else. No Snapchat, nothing, because it's just dead. So if you don't wear your rubber bands, it's like a dead battery. And with boys, depending on the age, uh, I'll say it's like having a car without gas. You know, you Mm -hmm. can sit there in it all day long and look cool, but nothing's happening. You're not going anywhere. That's a good analogy. And. You know, that usually strikes home when I look at the parents, because they always want to, can we just put the braces on? Mm-hmm. I went, well, if we put the braces on, they're not brushing their teeth very well right now, mm-hmm. so the braces aren't going to move the teeth without rubber bands any more than this is, and then you're going to have to worry about brushing and everything else in addition to the rubber bands. Is that really the war you want to have at home? Because you've got other things to worry about.
0: Ooh, crafty. I like that.
1: And they go, yeah, i got a lot of things. I said, so let's not put the braces on until we're ready.
0: Yeah. Ooh, I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna incorporate that for sure. So, Dave, I want to go to a little bit of a controversial topic around key opinion leaders. Ah, yes. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly have an inkling of how you feel about this, but. Um, for maybe people who aren't familiar with the term key opinion leader or, or KOL, uh, which is the acronym that that's out there, right? Uh, you know, uh, to summarize, I would say it's uh, basically an orthodontist that has a relationship with a company uh, and you know, providing clinical insight, perhaps feedback on the product, uh, but somehow certain people think that there's this hidden agenda, I guess, right, of uh, clinicians to uh, secretly and surreptitiously push the products. What are your thoughts on all this?
1: Well, I have very definitive thoughts on it because I have a foot in both canoes, if you will. Mm-hmm. One, I'm the lead clinical advisor for Henry Schein. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually an employee of the company. For 30 years, I've been a key opinion leader for different companies. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that people need to realize is that none of us get our products for free. It's against the law. Right? All right? So... The second part of it is that if I convince you to buy something, I don't get paid for that. I mean, that's, that's a bizarre fallacy, mm-hmm. right? Every person I know that's out there speaking is trying to share what they know and help other orthodontists get to a place of success. And do we advocate Certain products, almost everyone does because those are the products they use. I will tell you the vetting process that we go through, and I know it's very similar at a line and, and whatnot. There's tons of orthodontists that come and go, Yeah, I want to lecture for you. So the secondary question or follow up question of that is, Well, okay, what do you have to add to the equation?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, because lecturing is is hard work and we vet what they're saying to make sure that it's scientifically sound. Mm-hmm. We make sure that they're not making outrageous claims. The regulatory folks now are on it all the time even though uh, the marketing divisions of all these companies may try and stretch the rules. The regulatory um, process is unbelievable. Like, I'll give you an example. I have to sign in my role uh, at Henry Schein. I have to sign off on every single product before it's sold to the public. Oh, is that right? Every single one, Hmm. right? One orthodontic rubber band has six pages of regulatory paperwork. One rubber band. No way. A bracket has a notebook three inches wide. Wow. I mean, it is unbelievable the process that you have to go through so the idea that someone can just come up with a widget and sell it and go oh this works great absolutely does not happen and i will tell you when we have meetings in the in product development Mm -hmm. we look at things from every angle and some of them get very heated because no one wants a clinical failure of course no one wants to sell something that doesn't work no one wants to have their name associated with something that is either substandard or or doesn't perform as, you know, we would like it to. And so the idea that KOLs are out there just as
0: hucksters is absolutely wrong. And I tend to agree with that. Dave, I want to transition into some more modern times. We're recording this at hopefully the tail end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Basically, all orthodontists throughout the country were shut down for two months, and it was uh, probably a pretty incredible time for all of us. I don't think any of us were used to that sort of faux retirement. But what did you learn about yourself during the pandemic?
1: That I don't want to retire anytime <laughs> early because I was bored. Yeah. I, I, completely redid my, answer. I completely redid my garage. I got all my wife's honeydew lists finished. And then I made up some of my own <laughs> and uh, reorganized mine. I have a wood shop in the basement. And my father-in-law is a a, a master woodworker. And so when he's not at his house, he comes to ours. And my basement was a mess. So I completely reorganized it. The kids were tired of me thinking of things to do. So uh, yeah, I I found
0: I need to stay busy. So they were happy for you to go back to Absolutely. (laughs) So Dave, I want to close with this final question. Looking back at your career, looking forward, what do you think orthodontics will look like in 20 years, in, in the year 2040?
1: Oh, what a great question. I think we will really learn how to minimize the, the uh, contact in the office with of patients. We're actually working on a protocol right now at Henry Schein that we're calling minimal contact orthodontics and, and utilizing all the technologies that are available to give patients better care with fewer office visits.
0: So this would include maybe virtual monitoring?
1: Virtual monitoring, um, using 3D treatment planning, using everything that we can imagine, and then some, in order to uh, make the experience seamless and smooth and requiring less time of the patient to get there.
0: Wonderful. And I would agree, I think that's really where the trend is heading in, in terms of, Not only is that convenient on the orthodontist end, but for patients, because as much as they might love us, they don't necessarily want to come to see us every six to eight weeks.
1: No, we love them more than they love us.
0: That's probably true. That was Dr. Dave Paquette. To hear exclusive behind-the-scenes clips from my conversation with Dave, head over to illuminateorthopodcast.com. This episode was mixed and mastered by the talented Skylar Adler. You can learn more about him at skylarrossrecording.com. Also, the music for this episode was composed by Tom O'Grady in the UK and features my favorite instrument, the Fender Rhodes Piano. You can check out Tom's jazz funk group, Resolution 88, wherever you get your tunes. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you like the show, please take a second to click subscribe. Also, I'd really appreciate if you could share this show with your friends. Until next time, this is Chris Setta signing off.